Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. A sweeping new analysis upends the conventional narrative that Spanish settlers introduced the horse to indigenous North Americans. The study published in the journal Science backs up native stories and songs about horses that predate European arrival. It suggests native people domesticated horses as much as a century earlier than previous research contended. We'll learn more about the study and why it's important after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Alaska Native Heritage Center says its study of church records that go back to the 1800s is not just research for research's sake. Benjamin Jasek Dolchak, an indigenous researcher, says he hopes to reconstruct the story of how early churches used schools to separate Alaska Native peoples from their land, their culture, and their spirituality. He says the impacts are still felt today. You can't understand what you need healing from unless you pull back the Band-Aid and understand the wound. Jacek Dolchuk says most Alaskans don't realize how closely churches coordinated their efforts. While these might be different denominations, the ideology was ultimately the same. And that was forced assimilation. He says some of the research looks at the role of boarding schools and how Americanization and Christianity intersected to break the close connections Alaska Native people had with the land. And says the forced use of English took away the heart language of the people, which sped up the process. A major takeaway from what we're doing is understanding the truth to bring healing so that younger generations can thrive. Jacek Dolchuk is a member of the Kanaitsi tribe and has studied boarding schools for more than a decade and credits his grandfather who attended boarding school for inspiring his work. He's a Princeton Seminary graduate and says theology studies has helped him with his research. He'll be speaking Friday at the Alaska Native Heritage Center in Anchorage. President Joe Biden flew to Ireland Tuesday to mark the 25th anniversary of the historic Good Friday Agreement. But as show McPollin reports from Dublin, not everyone is celebrating the deal, which deferred indigenous Irish sovereignty in the name of peace and prosperity. The Good Friday Agreement was hammered out 25 years ago by Irish, British, and American negotiators. It effectively ended decades of violence against the Irish people and opened up the economy of Northern Ireland. However, it failed to unite the island of Ireland and left the British government, which sponsored much of the violence, in control of the six counties. Sinn Féin, now the most popular political party on the island, has been denied the chance to lead on either side of the border by their right-wing counterparts. Sinn Féin is pushing for a reunification vote, which has been gaining support since Brexit. Britain's withdrawal from the EU further isolated Northern Ireland from the rest of the island and put new pressure on the 25-year-old agreement. President Biden will spend this week attending anniversary events and visiting his Irish cousins. For National Native News, I'm Show McPollin in Dublin, Ireland. An indigenous author recently released a new children's book highlighting the cultural importance of hair. KUNC's Emma Vandenindy has more. Carol Lindstrom's mom never allowed her to have long hair when she was young. 
She didn't understand until she learned about Indian boarding schools, where her relatives were forced to cut their hair. My mom didn't allow it because it made us look native. It made us look uncivilized. That kind of decided it was time to tell the story. My Powerful Hair follows a young girl who sees her culture and life events woven into her hair like a scrapbook. At the end, the girl and her mom decide to grow their hair out together. For Lindstrom, the story is very personal. I wish my mom was still here. <laughs> she could be with me to celebrate who she was. Illustrator Steph Littlebird made the drawings colorful to show her community's resilience. We're fighting erasure on so many levels, and so um, these books make visible our community in a way that's so beautiful and empowering. My Powerful Hair is available in bookstores and online. For National Native News, I'm Emma Vandenindy. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The Indian Arts and Crafts Board promotes Indian artists of federally recognized tribes through its online source directory. Information on this no-charge opportunity available at doi.gov IACB who support this program. Support by the Gathering of Nations Powwow, a live event taking place April 27th, 28th, and 29th on the Powwow Grounds of Expo New Mexico, featuring song, dance, trader's market, horse parade, and more. Tickets available at gatheringofnations.com and at the gates. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. For decades, the accepted theory about how Native people domesticated horses began with Spanish settlers in New Mexico. Now, a new analysis of bones and other archaeological evidence suggests tribes could have used horses as much as 100 years earlier than European contact. The research published in the journal Science included a number of Native scholars. It references Native stories and cultural context that include horses as part of oral histories. Today we'll hear from three of the researchers included in the new study. We also welcome listeners into the conversation. How do your tribal stories and songs interpret the horse's journey among your people? What role did horses play in your tribe's culture, lifestyle, and social interactions? Share your knowledge and insights by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Speaking with us from Boulder, Colorado, is Chance Ward. He's a graduate student at the University of Colorado Boulder and a graduate research assistant at the University of Colorado Museum of Natural History. He's Lakota from the Cheyenne River Sioux Nation. Chance, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me on the show. Absolutely, Chance. We're looking forward to talking with you more. Also speaking with us today in Bloomington, Indiana, is Carlton Shield Chief Gover. He's an assistant professor of anthropology at Indiana University and curator of public archaeology at IU's Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology. He's from the Pawnee Nation of Oklahoma. Carlton, welcome to you as well. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And speaking with us from Toulouse, France, is Yvette Running Horse Colin. She is the executive director 
and principal science officer of an organization and an enrolled member of the Oglala Sioux Nation. Yvette, welcome, and please tell us more about your organization. I know uh, it has a Lakota name. It does. Thank you so much. Um, so our, the name of our institute is Thakushkanshkanwasagliapi, Global Institute for Traditional Sciences. And the acronym is GIFS, if that's easier for people, <laughs> because everything that comes through our institute will be a gift for the world. All righty. Well, appreciate that introduction, Yvette. And uh, Chance, let's go ahead and start with you today. And uh, let's talk about the importance of horses to our people I think we're all familiar with those classic images of horse-mounted natives from the 1800s. What more do we know about how our ancestors used horses? Uh, yeah, let me introduce myself a little bit more. Uh, how Mitakuyepi. My name is Chance Ward. I was born and raised in Eagle Butte, South Dakota, on the Cheyenne River Reservation. Uh, I began my college journey at Sippy in Albuquerque. Then I went to Fort Lewis College in Durango. And now I'm getting my master's degree at the University of Colorado. Uh, I do archaeology, zoo archaeology, NACPRA, repatriation, uh, and some museum studies. Awesome. Awesome. Nice to know you started out at Sippy, then made the move uh, north to Fort Lewis, and now you're in Boulder. Well, tell us more about horses and their historical impact amongst uh, Native people. Yeah. So, you know, once Native people got horses, it pretty much changed our our ways of life and our culture and our spirituality. You know, they allowed us to be more mobile and follow things, follow our food source spiritually, things like the buffalo, right? We were able to follow along with the buffalo, which was our primary source of food and clothing and uh, also got medicines from it. And there were dances based on uh, horses. Horse dance was a a traditional thing and even today they continue to be important even on reservations now there's ranching and rodeo and where i grew up i don't think i ever seen anybody that didn't have horses mm. <laughs> well sounds like a, a good childhood you had growing up there in south dakota and chance the prevailing theory had horses coming from Spanish settlers in New Mexico that were then distributed to other tribes sometime around uh, the time of the Pueblo Revolt in 1680. So tell us uh, this new research that's uh, been uh, published recently. What does it say? Yeah, so I, I helped with some of the, the um, archaeological analysis, which is looking at the the bones of these horses that come out of these archaeological sites. And by looking at the bones, you can kind of determine kind of these things that happen to them in their life. <clears throat> you can look at pathological evidence, which shows they had arthritis or bone cancer or some kind of bit was in their mouth and it wore away on their lower jaw or on the edge of the teeth. You know, you can see injuries that may have come up. And, you know, our archaeological analysis show that these domestic horses that were from these Spanish settlements in the southwest all kind of dispersed to the, to the Rockies and into the Great Plains by the first half of the uh, 1600s. Mm, really interesting. Let's uh, go ahead and pivot now to Carlton. And, and Carlton... Um... 
let's talk a little bit more about the research and the origin of horses in North America. And also just, I mean, in how big a deal are these findings that suggest that, um, you know, some native groups uh, possibly bred horses before the arrival of Spanish colonists in South in the Southwest? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Noah Kikarus, uh, Dr. Carlton, Shield Chief Gover. Um, yeah, I got my, uh, just, you know, doing a quick background, just like Chance, I got my uh, bachelor's at Radford University in Anthropology, my master's at University of Wyoming, and my PhD from uh, CU Boulder, and that's where I met Chance. So I've known Chance for, for quite a bit now. Um, you know, grew up outside of D.C. My father worked for the Bureau of Indian Affairs and then became superintendent of Wind River and then Crow Agency. So I lived out there for, for a while as well. Um, so when it comes to the research itself, you know, the, the main proponent of what we're talking about on this paper is the overall narrative as to when uh, nations in the Rocky Mountains and Great Plains had access to horses was after the Pueblo Revolt in 1680. Um, and so we dated a number of Amerindian horses that come from uh, indigenous archaeological sites and showed that there were indeed horses uh, in Idaho, Wyoming, Nebraska, and Kansas um, by 1640, so several decades before the Pueblo Revolt, right? Um, so that was kind of the big uh, impact of this paper, showing, well, actually, it wasn't the Pueblo Revolt um, that uh, created a, a, an opportunity for span, uh, horses to get out of New Mexico, but actually there was a rather complex and um, present um, indigenous trade system in which uh, the Utes were uh, raiding Spanish uh, settlements for horses, and also horses were just kind of escaping on their own. There's a number of Spanish expeditions where they're trying to get to the Missouri River and the Mississippi River, mm -hmm. and they lose horses on those treks. And so um, many indigenous oral traditions of the Missouri River tribes talk about, you know, horses just kind of showing up in town one day because um, these horses are, you know, domesticated Spanish horses, and they know where there's people, there's food, and there's water. Interesting. Now, were you at all surprised by any of these findings, such as how closely uh, the oral histories of some Native people, and it sounds like these archaeological findings align? I wasn't surprised at all. My research is using um, Pawnee, Arikara, and Wichita oral traditions to um, look at the archaeological records. So I've been doing this my entire career, and it's very often the case where the, you know, the histories as told by the descendants of these communities are often right. So to me, these results were not surprising. They're very much in alignment with what many indigenous archaeologists are, are showing. Really, this paper is more of a shock to non-indigenous people. Um, for us, you know, I actually had a, an uncle of mine. He came down to a conference where I presented, and there was a whole uh, presentation on Pawnee archaeology, and I asked him what he thought about it, and he was just like, I didn't learn anything new from this. <laughs> He's like, it's really <laughs> nice that archaeologists are getting caught up to what we've known for hundreds of years. So so for me, this wasn't surprising. We, we knew this was the case, um, and this is really just uh, just getting it out there to convince others uh, who, who still doubt the validity of indigenous oral histories. All right. Yvette, I want to bring you into the conversation now. And you have researched the relationships between Native Americans and horses for many years. How important is this study among all of the other research about horses uh, to date, up to date in North America? Well, I so said, let me first uh, introduce myself properly. So, Tashunke Iankewi Imachiab 
So you know my um, English given name, so Yvette Running Horse Colin. Um, very good to be with you today. And, you know, I, I am blessed, very blessed to work with a number of of our traditional leaders and knowledge keepers. And, you know, they've been able to teach me for 20 plus years now. So um, I think one of the most important things about this study is the type of collaboration that we created. That's number one. Um, also, I was really proud to be a part of a collaboration where so many of our traditional leaders and knowledge keepers participated. So, you know, we had 13 Lakota as co-authors on this paper, and they covered the range, right, of some of our, our highest uh, knowledge keepers down to some of the next generations, right, even, even younger than myself. And so, to me, that was really powerful and, and a very beautiful part of this study. And so, you know, our knowledge keepers, they want to do this for our future, right? They wanna do this for my generation and they wanna do this for my children and my grandchildren. That's the beauty of this. So for us, this, this collaboration is very much a first step. And so, you know, if you look through history, right? As soon as recorded history started happening, at least being recorded in this way, um, Yvette, I'm sorry, we are going to have to take a short break, but uh, when we come back, we'll definitely let you continue with uh, explaining more uh, about the significance and the origin of this research as well. Anybody listening with a question, with a comment, with any insights regarding horses and our Native people, give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. Some scholars say a U.S. Supreme Court ruling about tribal jurisdiction in Oklahoma may be the most important legal decision in 150 years. Two scholars take a look at the foundational legacy of McGirt v. Oklahoma in the new book, A Promise Kept. We'll hear more from them on the next Native America Calling. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about horses today. Does your tribe have a horse origin story? What's your understanding of how your tribe encountered horses for the first time? Join the conversation at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. On the line is Yvette Running Horse Colin. And Yvette, I'm sorry we had to take a quick break there, but please continue uh, your dialogue regarding uh, this study and just some of the, the key players and, and your findings. Absolutely. So thank you very much. And um, so as I was mentioning to you, we had a, a quite an amazing collaboration. And this is a very uh, long-term study that we uh, are, are a part of, right? So this is a very much a first step 
from our perspective, and we're going to keep um, keep unfolding this narrative for the world. So you asked a little bit earlier about the origins of the horse, right? So the horse originated in North America, and that is an accepted uh, fact by Western science and, and native sciences, right? So the horse originated with us, and then from there, it spread to other parts of the world. Um, interestingly enough, right, it's um, people say that the horse went extinct uh, after the last ice age, but with just a little bit of looking, already that story is changing, right? So, okay. so uh, they before a couple of years ago, right? It was horses went extinct in the Americas about thirteen to eleven thousand years ago, during the last ice age. One team in Canada took a look in two thousand and twenty-one. They published a study that found um, horse DNA five thousand years ago in the Yukon. Right. And then you have this study where with just a handful of archaeological samples, right, we've already moved the date up on, on the other end, 100 years before. Or, well, I mean, right, as as Carlton said, they, they're speaking in decades. Right. So when you do radiocarbon dating, it's in a range. Right. So it could be anywhere from, you know, like, a, I guess, a 100 year range. Is that correct, Carlton? So the AMS dates we got on the bones of these horses, it's uh, plus or minus 15. So we have it, you know, that's basically a 30-year window in which that horse remain um, goes to. Okay. All right. Thank All you, right. Carlton. Mm -hmm. So we've already moved, shifted that data, right? So one of the interesting things is, at least from, from my perspective as a Native scholar, um, you know, you want to look around and see who's speaking for you, right? So I've been in uh, France now for a couple of years, I'm completing my postdoctoral work in ancient horse genomics. And I'm sitting here in Europe, and I'm seeing how hard these scientists work to uh, support their narrative, right? And then we go to the United States, and very little has been done to tell the story of the Americas, right? Instead, they're pretty much following the European version. And so I, you know, not to speak for Carlton or for Chance, but, you know, I would imagine this is, this is, you know, finally, right? <laughs> finally, our scientists are beginning to tell our story. Um, so I just wanted to say that much for now. Okay. Thank you, Yvette. And uh, Carlton, let's go back to you now. So if you could just help us uh, understand this timeline a little bit more. Um, I mean, there are horse fossils in the Americas that date back uh, almost 60 million years, if I'm not mistaken. And then, But that was a very different type of animal than what we think of today as, as a horse, a modern horse. So uh, based on these findings, this research that you folks have done, I mean, what do you know about uh, these early modern type of horses that you've uh, found documentation or evidence that they lived, it sounds like at least 100 years before uh, the contemporary narrative places them. Uh, uh, yeah, so if we're talking about these, uh, the horses that we have uh, dated in, you know, the Rocky Mountains and Great Plains, right? So that we're looking at a sample of horses that exist um, basically in between Utah and, and Iowa and north of, you know, Albuquerque. Um, so we're not looking, there's a couple horse remains that we have dated 
um, in uh, Mexico City. So primarily we're looking at horses that are within uh, the central continental U.S. Um, and then as, as Yvette mentioned, there's actually a couple horses that we looked at in, in the Yukon and Alaska. Um, and when it comes to these dates, we were able to get at least you know, 10, 10 uh, of these horses from Nebraska, Kansas, you know, Idaho, Utah, and, and Wyoming that showed um, they were alive prior to the Club Revolts in 1680. And then we also show that there were um, horses that, you know, were, were around post-1700. Um, okay. when, when, it, when it comes to, like, radiocarbonating, radiocarbonating can't give a precise uh, one-year range just because the nature of how the sun uh, radiates carbon-14 to the Earth. It's, it's not a straight... Um, lineal line, it, it, there's wiggles in it, so that's where we get those plus or, mi uh, plus or minus states. So with these smaller age ranges, and with, through the use of um, Bayesian statistical modeling, we can plug these dates into an algorithm and uh, figure out how, how old these uh, samples are, and that's where we're getting these pre-1680 um, date ranges for, for a number of these, of these horses. Okay, so pre-1680, but we're not really sure how much earlier than that. So, for instance, you know, the 1300s or the 1400s, do we have any data that supports that, you know, horses could perhaps have been used by Native American people for maybe three, four, five hundred years before what current theories suggest? Not direct radiocarbon evidence, Um do, we don't have that uh, yet, if you know, if if it's out there. Um, okay. Now, of course, the the first question is, you know, what are other other researchers saying? I imagine, um, you know, there's been maybe some pushback. Uh, has the study so far has it been peer reviewed? And if so, what are are some other scientists or researchers saying? Yes, this journal, uh, the journal Science, is one of the most prestigious scientific journals in the world. And we've been working on this paper for like, what, two or three years now, Yvette? Like we've, we've been working on this paper for a long time. It's gone through peer review. We've done edits um, numerous times. Um, from my understanding, this has been well received. The math, uh, the stats, the DNA analysis is all super tight. I mean, the amount of co-authors that we have on here um, also speaks to, I think there's like over 65 different institutions that our authors are a part of that range from, you know, universities, but also to um, AMS labs that do dating from some of the most prestigious uh, radiocarbon labs. Um, so in terms of like how tight the data is in our results analysis and discussion, it is, as Yvette talked about in the beginning, like this is an amazing collaborative study that shows um, that indigenous oral traditions and this, you know, it is science. Um, and fits in, in, a, in, a, uh, in a holistic uh, scientific methodology. All right. And let's talk more about that, that oral history uh, of Native peoples. And Chance, I'd like for you to, to help us with that. And what do we know, you know about the origins of horses and, and when they were first used by our people based on our own stories and our own traditions? Yeah, you know, when I was growing up in South Dakota, um, it primarily followed the Western science narrative, right? That horses were kind of introduced post-1680 Pueblo Revolt, and then they were kind of dispersed in the southern part of the United States first, 
as they made their way north to the northern plains and Canada. And that's kind of the story that I grew up with. So being able to be a part of a study like this has been really important for me. You know, it allows us as Native people to do our own science, our own research, and kind of share the Native version, the Native Indigenous perspective that has usually been left out of uh, history documents and articles and research papers. Mm -hmm. Do we know what, what Native people were doing with horses uh, during this timeline that we're talking about today, uh, 1600s, you know, nearly 500 years ago? Uh, yeah, so some of the analysis that I kind of helped with, it's also included in the paper, is you know, doing some of the isotope analysis on things like the teeth. And it shows evidence that these horses were being raised locally. They were provided like veterinary care for their wounds or their injuries. Uh, they were even show they were take, taken care of during like winter months. You know, they were given hay or, you know, fodder. They were fed things like corn and, you know, some of their uh, osteological evidence shows they were either ridden or used in things like transport, maybe like pulling a, a lodge pole drag, carrying teepees and things like that. Carlton, back to you. I understand many of these conclusions are based on a skull of a young horse with a healed fracture. Why is that important? Absolutely. So um, showing evidence of care, that, that's what this skull uh, illustrates, is that, um, you know, in the wild when an animal suffers from a uh, bone break or a bone fracture they are usually uh, not able to survive long. You know, the predators kind of get to them. Uh, but showing that not only did this horse heal from that fracture, showed that it was cared for, um, but then also it was protected. And, and, you know, you can see that healing pattern that it, that it lived for quite some time after that injury healed from. So it, it, those sorts of biological and skeletal evidence uh, shows that this horse w was cared for by um, an indigenous person All right. or indigenous group of people. Yvette, I'd like to go back to you now because what, what I'm hearing here today is that, uh, again, our oral histories as, as Native people are, are being validated here by the findings of this research. And um, I, I imagine it is challenging um, with the, the traditional scientific uh, network to introduce data that's collected through oral history. Can you talk about that and, and why this study is significant with regard to its acknowledgement of, of Native oral histories? Absolutely. And, and if it's okay, I'd love to um, answer some of the questions you just asked uh, Chance and Carlton. Um, you know, we had our one of our um, main knowledge bearers in this area is Chief Joe American Horse, and he... Um, came forward to say that the Lakota people always had the horse. And, you know, all the things we've gone through with boarding school, you know, as Chance mentioned, the things we have to learn in those textbooks in school, you know, we have a knowledge bearer who came out and just said, the, the, the children need to know this. We always had the horse. And so I love that forward vision that our elders have for this. And so we understand we have to take steps, right? We want to bring 
the world and the communities and societies with us along this journey because they've had to read those books as well, right? They had to, to be tested on those textbooks that told us that Columbus brought all the horses. And many of us have other stories, right? Other narratives, other history. And in fact, we were very different with the horses than you know, the Spanish were when they brought their horses over. And we have beautiful stories about the fact that our horses, right? We, as Lakota, we, back at that time, we didn't keep our horses in corrals. Um, we didn't, we didn't use fences like that. So our horses, right? They're Shunwakan, they're the horse nation. And they had agency, right? We didn't treat them as if we were above them. In fact, we were we were companions. Some say even Shungwakan was a little higher than us, right? So this is an incredibly um, beautiful relationship that, you know, being here in Europe, I realized my colleagues here didn't have that relationship. And so we were drawing on different knowledge bases. And so you'll see in this study, I encourage people to read it because you'll see, you'll see our people in there. And you know, you'll see some of our knowledge keepers speaking, speaking the truth for us. And so they're, they're, as far as my understanding is, they're determined to take this all the way. And, you know, we had very intricate discussions, like, for example, Lakota, we didn't use domesticated and wild, those concepts, when it came to the horse nation, they're the horse nation, right? So these um, new ways with the horse that were developed once the pushing started, that's new, right? We've been here a really long time. And so I know one of the things that our elder knowledge keepers are discussing is they want as many nations to join us as possible, right? They, this is our story together and it doesn't need to match completely. How would it? right? We're all unique, but we're all foundational to this place that today they call the Americas, right? But our ancestors, we created this together. And so I really think that that's a beautiful vision. Um, also, for the first time in this science journal paper, indigenous sciences are acknowledged, mm -hmm. right? So there was a Western genomic analysis. It's a standard one that is done very commonly now. And then, you know, the Lakota question, for example, would be a very different analysis. And that's acknowledged in there. And so this is, um, this is a big deal. Yeah, it sounds like it really is. And um, these oral histories uh, being acknowledged here formally through this research. And I want to pivot back to Carlton and Carlton, we do have to take a break in a couple of minutes, but, you know, based on, on these findings that you and these other researchers have uncovered, I mean, it really casts a lot of doubt on this narrative that we're all so familiar with that the horse was introduced by Spanish colonials. And uh, what do we know about that previous methodology that has, um, you know, been the source of that prevailing narrative for all these years? And how does it compare to the research that you and these other folks have compiled now? Well, there wasn't much research done for that 1680 narrative. It was just kind of this assumed knowledge. There's just the Pueblos revolted against the Spanish, and they burnt down, you know, the Spanish uh, uh, governor palaces, and they released the horses, and that's and that's just kind of this assumed. Okay, well, that's when 
um, indigenous nations outside of New Mexico got horses because you have to remember, right, there aren't um, colonizer, European colonizers in the Great Plains or Rocky Mountains at this time um, in 1680. You have the English and French on the East Coast, and you have the Spanish in the Southwest, but there's no uh, colonizer presence in, in the Great Plains or Rocky Mountains. So there's kind of this black hole of Western literature um, because they're just not there documenting it. So that's, that's kind of like the quote-unquote research that, that has driven that 1680 narrative. It's, it's purely just because it's, they just assumed that to be the date. Um, and, you know, it's not like they asked indigenous people, like, how long have you had the horse? So everything that we've known for, like, when the Pawnee and the other Missouri River tribes um, got the horses, it's just when they came in contact with maybe a, a, a literate mountain man who documented, <laughs> yeah, there were indeed yeah. horses at, uh, this Pawnee town or at this Ponca town, right? So that's just kind of where it comes from. The, this, the, the previous data was based on, you know, if someone happened okay. to write down. Which We're going to have to take mean. another break, Carlton, but uh, we'll be right back, folks. Stay with us. Smoking gave me COPD, which makes it harder and harder for me to breathe. I have a tip for you. If your doctor gives you five years to live, spend it talking with your grandchildren. Explain to him that your grandpa's not going to be around anymore to share his wisdom and his love. I haven't figured out how to do that yet. I'm running out of time. COPD makes it harder and harder to breathe and can cause death. You can quit. For free help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. You're listening to Native America Calling. We're focusing on the horse nation today and some authors of a new study about the origins of the important animal in Native communities. Plenty of time still to join our conversation. How important are horses to you and your tribe? We're at 1-800-996-2848. Once again, that number to call is 1-800-996-2848 to share your thoughts. We've got Carlton Shield Chief Gover on the line. He's an assistant professor of anthropology at Indiana University and one of the authors of this study. And Carlton, before break, uh, you explained that uh, this long-standing narrative that horses came up from from European colonizers, it, it's just based on a very general assumption with, with no real hard data to support it. So this really begs the question, I mean, based on what you and, and these other researchers have, has, have learned through the study of horses, what other long-standing archaeological and scientific theories regarding our people do we need to be questioning and re-examining through an indigenous lens? Yeah, so, so you know, a, a caveat to that. So, like, Plains and, and Rocky Mountain tribes, uh, you know, that, that long-standing narrative is that they got horses after the Pueblo, you know, Pueblo Revolt, and we're showing that it happened before. Um, but, you know, with my research and what I look at, I look at um, the ethnogenesis of the Pawnee, Arikara, and Wichita. So, basically, when do we see archaeologically what we know of, of those three tribes? When do they appear um in the archaeological record, like when do we see earth lodge towns? When do we see corn, um, agriculture, seasonal bison hunting? That's what I look at, and then also investigating um, our ancestors in the past, right? Because um, we know through global human history that there's there's change that takes place culturally across the world between people, um, and you know other things that uh, we need to reinvestigate. Uh, we we really need more indigenous anthropologists and archaeologists. You know, we need more indigenous people within these fields because so far, um, you know, like in the Great Plains, you know, the largest geo geographic biome in North America 
there's maybe two dozen indigenous people that have, you know, PhDs or master's degrees mm-hmm. in anthropology and archaeology. And that's such a huge area. And I'm fortunate that with the Pawnee Nation, that my, my tribal historic preservation officer, he has a master's in, you know, museum studies and allows me to not be a tippo and to do research and support my um, community through looking at questions that they have, such as, um, you know, corn agriculture. I support the Pawnee Nation Seed Preservation Project in that way. Um, and so really in order, I, you know, I can't speak for every indigenous nation, but from um, some of our neighboring tribes, you know, they would really benefit from having more indigenous people from their from their uh, nation to uh, get in this field and, and contribute using their indigenous knowledge to look at look at the past, um, because in you know American archaeology for like 20, 30 years from the 70s from the 60s to the 90s was based on archaeology as a capital S science and that uh, you have to be as unbiased as possible. But you know their uh, interpretations were very much guided by their ways of thinking and. Um, there's often times where I'm in the field or reading a paper, and uh, these authors are confused. They don't understand what they're seeing. And I'm like, oh, I know exactly what that is. I know, you know, what cultural practice that's speaking to, right? Because they just don't have the intellectual or cultural knowledge to inform them of what they're seeing in the record, whereas mm-hmm. um, indigenous people that have grown up with their communities, you know, do. So um, having more indigenous people in this field will allow us to um, reinvestigate many of these longstanding narratives that were held by these archaeologists from the mid-20th century. And for a, a layperson such as myself, I am not a researcher, I'm not a scientist, I, I think we just generally assume that, that somebody with a PhD or, or a researcher is is going to be relatively objective or unbiased, and it sounds like uh, that's not always the case. So I'd like to go ahead and pivot now back to Yvette. And Yvette, Carlton stresses the need for, for more Native scientists, more researchers, more archaeologists, but it also sounds like there is a need uh, among mainstream science to be more receptive to data provided through oral history. Can you talk about that? Yeah, and I and first of all, I, I agree with what Carlton said, and I would want to add in there too that it's really important that we bring forward our elders and our knowledge keepers. If they want to say something, if they decide it's important, then us, the younger generations with this training, should work very hard to provide that opening for them. So so that's number one. Um, can you please ask your question one more time so I make sure I'm answering it? Absolutely, yes. What can be done so that mainstream science is more receptive to data provided through our oral history as Native people? I think this study has done something, another fantastic thing, which is we showed the world that together, we got to the highest point, right? There's there's no nothing higher right now than Science Journal, right? This is this uh, publication in this journal is is something that Western scientists aspire to, and many won't ever achieve that. And so one of the myths, right, is that when you're working with um, native peoples or native scientists, that basically the science is watered down. And that is absolutely not the case with uh, with our collaboration with this paper. And we got to the highest point. That is the type of, of work we need to do together to create a path forward for those who, who want to follow in our footsteps so they understand this isn't going to take anything away from them. This is actually going to help them succeed. 
And so I, that's one of the things I, I loved about this collaboration is we aimed high and we delivered. All righty. Let's uh, go ahead and bring in a, a fourth guest on our show. Uh, just joined the conversation in Boulder, Colorado. We have William Taylor. He's an assistant professor and curator at the University of Colorado. Will, thanks for joining us here. Late notice, but you made it. Hey, thanks for having me. Sorry, I had to run run from class just to call in here. So, uh. <laughs> well, we sure do appreciate you taking the time. And, Will, a big takeaway from our conversation today that I'm I'm experiencing here is that traditionally Native voices have not been included in scientific discussions, such as uh, you know the origin of the horse and so many other uh, scientific and archaeological issues. Why is that? You know, uh, the discipline of archaeology is a pretty young one, and it's important for us as folks that are practicing it today in the 21st century to realize that, you know, the, in many ways the genesis of archaeology uh, comes out of the process of colonization, right? Uh, the curiosity of Euro-American folks on, you know, how to explain a past that they were in the actively in the process of stripping away and sort of uh, removing from the landscape around them. And so um, from kind of from its initial design, the, the goal of archaeology was not to sort of objectively understand the past, but to impose a new one, right? Um, and I think it's, it's uh, fantastic, uh, wonderful that, uh, that we might be able to do something different with that today. But in order for us to get at what I would consider truly good science, uh, we have to work really, really hard at stripping away uh, some of these really systemic uh, choices that were made, you know, decades or, or even, you know, centuries ago here about who gets to be involved in deciding what to research and how, who gets, you know, to sort of whose set of assumptions and ideas and perspectives are we kind of taking for granted before we start? And as we assess new ideas, you know, who's in the room? And, you know, I love, uh, as we were talking about this morning when we had our first chat, um, you know, I love science. I think it's wonderful that we have a tool that allows us to kind of uh, critically assess our ideas and, circle back, you know, you have to prove your point or you have to, you know, um, justify what, what you want to say, but it's not, it's not infallible. And if we want to get the right answer, uh, we have to have a look at who's involved. And it is absolutely from the beginning uh, of, you know, of course, native folks were not involved in the scientific process because the whole point of archeology span was to impose uh, a totally different, set of assumptions and ideas on, uh, you know, the American understanding of the past. And now that we're starting to realize that, you know, um, collectively Euro-American folks like me are starting to catch up to where Native folks have been for a while, uh, it's going to have to be a lot of hard work in order to, to un, you know, unpack some of that uh, structural design that's been built into the discipline from the beginning. Will, as important and groundbreaking as this evidence is regarding the origin of the horse in the Americas, is it fair to say that an even bigger takeaway here is just the value of 
native collaboration in fields of science such as archaeology? You know, I do think that's in many ways the most important takeaway from what we've done here. You know, um, the folks on this call, the folks that, I mean, I haven't heard what they said, but I'm sure that it was, you know, really, I've heard in every conversation with the, the folks in this room here, I've just been blown away at the, the insight that uh, folks have, have brought to the table. But, you know, there's an incredible amount of bravery. Uh, and the, the truly groundbreaking aspect here is that, you know, we have folks that are willing uh, to take the risk to work with people like me, right? Because it's a risk on everyone's side. Everyone's had to humble themselves to be open-minded, thoughtful, collaborative, um, and brave, you know, to, to try a different approach to science. And I do think that what I hope, right, from this, you know, first step that we've taken here is that we're offering some ideas, um, or how we can start to do more of this um, more broadly. And I do think once we start getting, uh, changing the, the who's in the room and what questions are being asked, there's gonna be more and more, um, you know, really important, um, you know, discoveries, findings, and relationships coming out of this that, that are actually doing something for the, you know, uh, communities that they affect. Mm-hmm. Well, Will, uh, earlier we talked about the importance of, of peer review and, and how, you know, having other researchers review this information, look at it, confirm, question. And it sounds like there's also a need for more, uh, more collaboration and more inclusiveness with regard to the peer review process as, a, as, as well as just the actual research itself. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of problems with the the basic scientific infrastructure. And we encountered some of that as we tried to navigate this this process here. You know, um, for example, um, somebody comes forward with traditional knowledge. Um, that process of keeping that traditional knowledge is essentially a peer review, right? And so we found there was a little bit of a collision there with, you know, how do you incorporate and build some of this stuff into, a, you know, the Western scientific system. And I think we found some creative solutions. You know, we found some compromises, some creative solutions. But one thing we also, you know, learned is that, um, you know, if we really want to have science be self-corrective and make sure that we have the right ideas in there and that when you come up with something that's being reviewed by a peer, then those peers have to include Native folks too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and if they don't, uh, then each moment of you know, new ideas coming forward is at risk, right, of the kind of uh, existing interests and ideas remaining kind of entrenched. So I think the fact that you have young scientists like um, like Yvette, Carlton, and Chance that are coming forward in these different disciplines, anthropology, archaeology, genetics, um, that's going to be the thing that really changes science for the better, you know, because uh, having folks, those folks involved in the process of peer review is the only thing that's going to ensure that, you know, um, perspectives start to change. All righty. And Chance, I'd like to go back to you here before we wrap up the show in a couple of minutes. And so here you've been a part of this really groundbreaking research, uh, sheds an entirely new perspective on on the origin of horses. And 
what's next now? I mean, what's the plan with regard to this research and uh, follow-up studies and everything else that comes with that? Yeah, I like to follow what everybody said, what Carlton, Yvette, and uh, Will were saying about uh, future research should include uh, Native people from the very beginning. I think that's an important step in painting the whole complete picture in, when doing science and research and getting our side of the story put out there. Um, and like Carlton was saying, there needs to be more Native people, uh, Native scientists in general. You know, I think having people doing our own work, sharing our own stories uh, will be a, a, a major step in that I see. Appreciate that chance. And, and Carlton, I'd like you to, to, to expand on that as well. What would you like to see next here uh, with regard to how this research is distributed and perhaps follow-up research? Yeah, absolutely. I've been, uh, in terms of follow-up research, I've been uh, chatting with, uh, you know, Dr. Taylor here about investigating some of the uh, earliest Spanish horses that arrived in the Caribbean. I just got back from the Dominican Republic doing some uh uh, investigatory uh, analysis of some of the museum collections there. But really, it, it's this call that we need more Indigenous people in the field to bring in their Indigenous perspectives. You know, as Yvette talked about earlier, the need to allow a space for Indigenous knowledge keepers, right? Like, uh, my home community does not give, uh, does not care that I have a piece of paper that calls me a doctorate, right? Um, and there's been times where I've asked questions and they're like, you know what, that's not for you. You're not part of those societies. And I'm like, sweet, perfect. I don't need to know then. And relaying that to some of my colleagues who have these questions, I'm like, no, this knowledge isn't for you, um, and you need to leave it alone. And they're becoming more receptive to that. So just having the more more indigenous people in this field is going to change these uh, change these long held narratives. And it's the same thing that we've seen with you know more indigenous people getting in law, more indigenous people getting in education. Every time indigenous people uh, get into a space, um, there is overall change in those in those spaces. So. We're just hoping, um, you know, things like genetics, anthropology, and archaeology, more indigenous people will create changes in those fields as well. We are going to have to wrap up our show now. We're out of time. I want to thank all of our guests today for sharing insights and new information regarding the history of horses among Native Americans. Join us on NAC again tomorrow for a discussion with authors Robert Miller and Robbie Etheridge about their new book, A Promise Kept, and what they say is the most important legal ruling for Native Americans in 150 years. Thank you for listening. The Indian Arts and Crafts Act protects authentic American Indian and Alaska Native artists and craftspeople and their art and craftwork. Under the act, it is illegal to market art or craftwork misrepresented as American Indian, Indian, Native American, or Alaska Native made, or as the product of a particular Indian tribe. Reporting potential act violations can be done at doi.gov IACB or at 1-888-ART-FAKE. Support provided by Indian Arts and Crafts Board. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian country are Amerind's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com.
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanek Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.